Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I have the opportunity to speak with Daniel Black, the author of the provocative new novel, Perfect Peace, published by St. Martin's Press in 2010. Perfect Peace is the story of a male child who is raised for the first eight years of his life as a daughter, and then suddenly discovers that he's a boy. This novel challenges gender identity, gender performance, and assumptions that we have about what gender should be. Daniel Black asks us to deal with all this as he takes us into a beautifully crafted story that he gives to the world. Let's listen to what he has to say. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Vashon, how are you, my good brother? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Today we are talking to Daniel Black, the author of a provocative new novel published in March of 2010 entitled Perfect Peace. Daniel Black also has two other novels to his credit, They Tell Me of a Home, published in 2006, and The Sacred Place, published in 2008, all of these novels published by St. Martin's Press. Perfect Peace is a novel that interrogates the unreliability of gender and gender performance, as well as sexuality in an African-American context. In this novel, uh, the protagonist, uh, Peace, or later we find out the name is Paul, is raised as a girl for the first eight years of his life. And the novel chronicles what happens in the aftermath of that gender uh, that, that gender raising. And today we have Daniel Black to talk to us about this novel and about the acclaim that it has gotten. But first, Daniel, can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am professor of African American Studies at Clark Atlanta University. I also teach um, writing and literature classes at Morehouse College. I'm a graduate of Temple University's African American Studies program. I've um, had the PhD for the last 20 years, and uh, I'm a novelist. I'm, I've, I've been very interested in taking African-American literature, hopefully, into some new directions and, and trying to, um, to give a different voice to those things which have been historically silenced among us as African-American people. I run a Rites of Passage community. I and a group of elders here in Atlanta called Indugu and Nzinga just the most amazing, most magical place and group of young people I've ever encountered. And I'm a man who's just very much committed to, to discovering ways to heal um, the historical atrocities experienced by African people and to help us to have the kinds of, the kinds of conversations which would breed that, that healing and to explore those avenues which would ignite all of our um, absolute humanity. Um, so I'm hoping I'm on the road to doing that. Wow, I would say that you are, having read uh, all of your novels and as well as uh, knowing you personally. Can you tell us how uh, obtaining a Ph.D. in African-American studies informs your work as a novelist? Absolutely. If I could do anything over again in life, it would be, the acquisition of the Ph.D. in African-American studies. <laughs> there is nothing I have ever done. No, I'm serious. There's nothing I've ever done that has increased my intellectual and my spiritual territory the way the Ph.D. in African-American studies has because it taught me aspects of my history, my character. Uh, it taught me aspects of African culture. It taught, it taught me not just facts, but it taught me ideologies and perceptions and approaches and methodologies which have made me understand um, 
African-American and African people's movement through the cosmos in a way that has made me love myself and has mm-hmm. made me know that there, that there are reasons why um, Africans throughout the diaspora struggle in particular kinds of reasons. But the real truth is um, an, an ignorance of one's history truly strip one's, strips one of the ability to understand the ways in which our oppression is able to be perpetuated. Um, and so uh, have, having done the PhD in African American Studies allowed me to study in very specific detail, not a kind of cursory glance, but in very specific detail, what has happened to my people and why. And that certainly informs my work. And I hope it then, by extension, informs readers. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier when I laughed, I was laughing out of delight and recognition because I wholeheartedly um, can concur with that statement. Um, yes, I, I, I totally understand and um, uh, support the importance of African-American studies at the graduate level. One of the uh, things that has happened to African people and African-Americans in America not only has to do with their uh, economic and social situation, but with uh, the way in which we live humanity, which is in, in, in a certain way what your novels are about, in particular Perfect Peace. Can you tell us what Perfect Peace is about and how you came to write this novel? Yes, Perfect Peace is the story of a creation, a human creation. Perfect Peace is about a very desperate mother named Imogene Peace, who in the 1940s has six sons. She decides that she wants a girl so badly that she, in fact, needs a girl for her own personal healing so badly that when her seventh son is born, she decides she's going to raise him as the daughter she's always dreamed of. And and so the story really is about the ways in which we construct our own healing, the ways in which we use other people to try to get our own um, healing, if you will, the ways in which we sometimes are willing to abuse others for what we think is our own personal gain especially parents to children. And so the novel is about how this desperate mother, Imogene, pulls this off. And it's also about what happens when the truth is revealed, because, of course, that kind of lie cannot be concealed forever. And I wanted to write this novel several years ago. I've been done writing this novel because I felt like we'd been talking as an American scholarly public about issues of gender and sexuality as if these were externally imposed issues. Mm-hmm. And instead of writing about them as if these were internal issues with which we have struggled or either um, uh, talked about, and not just in, in America, but even in pre-colonial African days, mm-hmm. the ways in which um, gender and sexuality were thought of, the ways in which uh, they were made room for, the ways in which the culture um, um, inscribed um, these realities. And, and so I was very much interested in looking at um, what has been the way in which black folk particularly have thought about issues of gender and issues of sexuality when we are outside of white purview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, so I, and, and so this book is the result of that. So when you say um, uh, you were interested in the way in which the conversation uh, about gender and sexuality seemed to take on a... Um, a take on the position that that gender sexuality are externally imposed realities. What does that mean exactly? Meaning, I'm very much interested in how um, in how we think about these issues of gender sexuality, etc. Um, aside from believing that these are our um, cultural notions which were imposed upon us or which we inherited upon our encounter with the West particularly our encounter with Europeans and slavery. I'm not one who's of the belief that Africans arrived in America as a blank cultural slate, as if we had no notions of these realities and as if we had no beliefs about them. Mm-hmm. I'm one who believes that, that, that theories of gender and sexuality rode, rode on the Middle Passage mm-hmm. and that those theories, when they arrived in America, were absolutely encountered and intruded upon um, by a very hostile, dominant cultural discourse here. Um, and I, and I, I believe that as, 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 I'm sorry for cutting you off, but I believe as we get more into the conversation about the particulars of the novel, some of these theories will emerge. Am I right? 
or some yeah. how, uh, or how some of these theories impacted the way in which you developed the the uh, plot in the text. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So let's get started. Normally, when I uh, talk to authors of academic books, um, we go chapter by chapter and they tell us uh, what the chapters are about and what they're arguing there. A novel is different. So let's let's talk about the plot um, and use that as our um, structuring device and begin okay. at at the uh, uh, start of this novel with um, Emma Jean's decision or her pregnancy, rather, with um, her last child. Start there. Okay. Okay. Well, Emma Jean is pregnant with what she understands will be her last child, what she assumes will be her last child. And Emma Jean is so wounded from her own childhood. She is dark-skinned. She's made to believe that she's ugly. Uh, her mother physically and verbally and psychologically abuses her. And Emma Jean is desperate for healing, but she cannot seem to find any cultural mechanism to provide that healing. Uh, the church is inept at the time. She, she, there's no TV. She doesn't have any friends. And so Emma Jean sneaks upon this, this very controversial notion that maybe she should create the mechanism for her own healing. And so that's what she does. She creates the child she always wanted. She really creates the child she always believed she was. And uh, she uses this child as almost a kind of cultural insult to um, to the, the community in which she lives by telling them this is the way you should love a child. This mm-hmm. is how perfect a child is supposed to be. This is the way I should have been treated. And, of course, mm-hmm. she names her, um, her creation, she names this child perfect mm-hmm. because, that's what she, because that's what she is, as she says. An interesting thing even about the name is that the child is imperfect in very conception. But she named the child perfect because the child is perfectly what she needs. Right. And her, her, her desire to um, show love and affection to a little girl, to a daughter, isn't necessarily um, a, a bad thing. What The problem is that she desires a girl so much that when she has a boy, she... Uh, decides to raise him as a girl, or at least that's right. the, that's the problem that uh, that uh, that the novel is working with. Right, that's right. Why, that's absolutely right. Why is that a problem, though, in the context of the novel? Well, because the first thing that I think is interesting is Imogene's discovery that gender has all of these slippery places such that she is even able to do this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, it, you know, her discovery that um, that there are ways in which men just do not deal with children, and there are ways in which men certainly avoid little girls and avoid li- little girls um, um, privately in their bodies. So, you know, she, she discovers that, you know, she can keep this lie because Gus, as a man, is not going to change a little girl's diaper anyway, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because, you know, that's kind of, a, you know, a cultural violation. She also discovers that there are constructs of masculinity and femininity which are so rigid that she can metaphorically navigate her way in and out of these places without ever being detected. Right, and she has a lot of experience with um, with gender uh, and the complications of gender. I mean, her own childhood experience with her mother, and other girl, her her girlfriends um, that that are that remain her friends in the novel, or at least associates in the novel through to the end, like uh, Henrietta, um, right. etc. But also, she's the mother of six other boys, and 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 right. and has a husband, and so lives in a masculine uh, constructed environment uh, for That's a long right. time. That's right. And I, I even thought about ways in which I, I think about this as a kind of a sort of Adam and Eve story in that, you know, I think of the Garden of Eden as a very patriarchal, a very masculine place. God is, God, God is presented as a man. Satan is presented as a man. Adam is a man. So the only woman is Eve. Mm-hmm. And I thought about the ways in which then Eve has to carry the brunt of what it means um, to have gender because she has the difference. Mm-hmm. And so in this sense also... Um, Emma Jean is in this very masculine world, and the perfection she needs uh, is feminine. And so she has to create something like herself mm-hmm. in order to get 
in order to get a kind of healing because the other men don't have it. The patriarchs don't carry the, the level of healing, the level of empathy, the level of understanding, which would, which would usher her into a self-love. Right, exactly. So you said she wanted to create something like herself and also a version of what she would have and, and, and does and would, would have and would like to be. That's right. That's right. That's right. She's literally, she's almost acting like God in a sense. She's mm-hmm. creating uh, an image of herself mm-hmm. that, gonna, that could then turn around and love her back. I want to come back to this, this, this conversation, but I want to skip to the end. I, want, I don't want to give too much away because a good novel is like a good movie, right? You, you, you want people <laughs> to come to it. You want them to see the twist right. and turn. So I don't want to give too much away here. But I do want to suggest uh, to the readers and and posit for you to 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 say something about Imogene's suffering. Imogene, to me as a reader, I want to tell you, I think suffers um, to an extreme degree. Uh, at, throughout the, at, at, as I was getting to the last chapters in the novel, and Imogene was still suffering. Um, I felt for her all the more. I mean, she had done what 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 the society deemed was a, an unthinkable or unforgivable sin, right? Raising a little boy as a little girl that 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 they seemed to suggest that that was just unforgivable as if she had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit itself. Um, But the, but the, the novel itself as a whole seems to support um, that castigation of Imogene in the fact that she suffers immeasurably in this text. Let let me tell you what's so just, phenomenally ironic about this statement. Most readers whom I've encountered over the past year have told me that Emma Jane gets off far too easy. Okay, wait, hold up. Let let me stop here. Emma Jane, first of all, gets slapped or knocked out by Gus, her husband, when he finds out. That's right. That's right. She gets burned. uh, That's right. Which which Gus and others proclaim was an act of God punishing her. That's right. That's right. She goes into involuntary servitude for uh, to to in order to to, to pay off the moral debt that that she owes. That's right. For someone who that's right who, who helped her in this, and she pays the ultimate price. So right. I mean, how is it that she gets off easy? I cannot tell you how funny this is. Again, I cannot tell you the number of readers. The vast majority of readers have suggested that um, that Imogene got off too easy for what she did. And I, my argument has been exactly what you said. I said, you know, my, oh, my God, could she have been tortured more? But they said <laughs> no, that, you know, that there are ways. But let me tell you what I feel like I've figured out. What they're really saying is Imogene does commit the unforgivable. But the unforgivable... Dr. Young, is to violate a patriarch's destiny. Mm, mm, mm. They're not saying this would be true if the child were a girl and made into a boy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's a way in which we're invested in patriarchy and a way in which we're invested in black boys getting their, their due, if you will, as patriarchs, that when Imogene interrupts that, that is worse than blasphemy. Wow. That's deep. What is that, where does that come from? What does that stem from? Because black men, and, ooh, black men and black women, too, we have waited for the last 300 years to get our chance to be the patriarch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And black women have waited for black men to assume the position and for them to stand proudly next to him. Mm-hmm. And to violate, to interrupt a black boy's ascension to the level of the ultimate patriarch is is, tant- is tantamount to dethroning God. So this novel, your novel, is trying to get 
readers, I think, to critically interrogate our own involvement and perpetuation of detrimental gender ideologies and practices. Yet, and still, some readers go away, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, leave the text, wanting, not necessarily wanting to support um, um, a traditional patriarchal uh, ideologies, but doing so anyway in their uh, understanding of, of the price that, that Imogene is asked to pay. Yes, 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 yes. And there are ways in which I think readers' responses have been a, an exposure and an expose on readers' subconscious celebrations of patriarchy more than their critique of the abuse which we're willing to um, to wield upon one another to attain it. As an For example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. go on. Yeah, um, I can't tell you the number of women and men too, but I'm, I have to admit I'm most uh, um, troubled by this in women. The number of black women who have said that Gus's physical um, um, his physical reality, his the fact that he jumps on Imogene and fights her and beats her up the day he learns the truth, that they thought Gus was not only correct, but that Imogene was long overdue for it. Wow. Well, you know, personally, um, when I started reading the novel a year ago, and our listeners should know that you and I are colleagues and friends, I called you after that scene greatly disturbed. Right. Greatly disturbed at the fact that you, (laughs) as the author, uh uh had a scene where where Gus would um would um beat his wife um and and I want to connect that to this conversation that we ha- we're having about the cost that Imogene is asked to pay can you talk about your choice as an author uh there in those two instances to the extent yes. that they are choices right exactly and and that's really where I would start because I'm not sure these are so much authorial choices as they are are reflections of cultural choices mm-hmm. um I do believe that under the notion of that, that which would be culturally correct culturally believable, I do believe that this is how a black man at the time would have responded mm-hmm. so I think that I think that to represent Black black masculinity and represent black culture correctly. I think that was important, whether I think it was right or not. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. absolutely think it was incorrect. Mm-hmm. But I do think it was. I think it is correct to represent uh, cultural behavior um, in a way that 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 displays both truth and that allows us to see ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if I had my way, Gus definitely would not have been her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think when the culture has its way, and the culture is always bigger than any one person, uh, the culture is always bigger than any one you know creative moment. The culture insisted that Gus act this way, and um, and readers have absolutely found Gus's behavior to be not only acceptable but again celebratory. What about the tr- the tr- the price that Imogene pays? You know. I have to admit that Imogene is probably my favorite character in this book. I'm sympathetic to Imogene for so many, 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 many reasons. But the interesting thing is I think the price Imogene has to pay is not because Imogene raises the boy as a girl. I think the price Imogene has to pay and the price people make Imogene pay is because Imogene is willing to take the risk to act like God. Mm-hmm. And since we cannot see ourselves as divine, since we cannot see blackness as holy, Imogene has to be crucified. It's the exact same reason that people purport that Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified because he believed he was the son of God. Mm-hmm. Imogene is crucified because she believes that she can create beingness. I I understand. I I you probably can tell I'm I'm still just as <laughs> I am not the unbiased interviewer. <laughs> I, am, I am I am I am I'm very disturbed by by uh by Imogene's character 
and I and I want to do some some uh, other work with that, even in my my own work in the way in which uh, 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 she is profiled in your novel. But let's let's move on and talk about perfect and yes. and what happens to perfect the the, uh, the 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 child that's born a biological boy that's raised as a gendered girl for the first right. eight years of his life. Let's let's talk about him and her. Well, Perfect is um, a girl, and I don't. I think it's important that we are clear that Perfect is a girl. Perfect is not just a. Perfect is not a boy dressed up as a girl. Perfect is a girl. There was never a day when Perfect was has been a boy. Biologically, I mean, in terms of the sex designation, he's born with a penis. Right, but boys are not biological entities. Boys mm-hmm. are cultural and social con- uh, con- construction. Mm-hmm. So biologically, this girl has a penis. That is correct. But she has never known herself as a boy. That's right. And and I think that's very important because boys are physiological humans with penises and who, with the social construct of maleness and masculinity. Mm-hmm. The two have to go together. And so in this case, this child does have, have the penis, but the child does not have the social construction of maleness. So Perfect is raised as a girl, and she... Perfect is a girl. Okay, Perfect is a girl. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Perfect is born into the world as a girl. Right. Okay, Um, the mother raises her as a girl, and the mother... uh, uh, Perfect gets her... Uh, discourses, her scripts for being a woman from her mother and from her female friends. That's right? That's right. That's right. Where do the boys, her six brothers, get theirs? They get theirs. I think they they get theirs from their father. Mm -hmm. But I also think they get theirs from their mother, too. Because remember, when we're talking about the construction of gender, women participate in the construction of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And men participate in the construction of femininity. So, and they get it from the community, they get it from the school, they get it from the church. Remember, the children are always talking about the things that, you know, the reverend said. Right, right. Just that his word is law. You know, even things like, remember, you know, when they're little boys, um, boys are, aren't supposed to see little girls naked. Boys are not supposed to swim naked in the pond with little girls because, you know, Reverend Lindsay said that you go to hell for doing stuff like that. Right, right. Yes. I just, I just wanted to... Um you know, be clear about where these where these scripts were coming from, since that even at the outset, you said there wasn't a lot of mediated uh, influences in terms of, of technological influences where they would right. they would get these um, viewpoints that they come from interpretations of, of biblical text. They come from religious discourse, from familial uh, discourse, et cetera, and from and from the traditions uh, in which they live, the culture traditions. Right. Absolutely. And what so what happens after um after the age of eight for perfect? Wow, wow. Imogene fears that her lie is about to unravel. And Imogene fears that if she does not tell Perfect the truth, that Perfect is gonna find out through through some other clandestine way and it will cost Imogene everything, especially her bond and her intimacy with the only person she perceives truly loves her. Mm-hmm. So she decides that she's going to unveil the truth herself. So, you know, not to give too much of the novel away, but Imogene does this just traumatic, traumatic um, transformation of this child from from physically looking like a girl to physically looking like a boy. And she brings the child home to Gus and the other six brothers and presents new creation, this modified self to the family. And, of course, the men folks are just horrified. They're just traumatized and horrified. And they, don't, and they, of course, are unable to make this transition because in their heads this has been a girl and always has been a girl. And they don't know anything about, and they, they've never been introduced to notions of transgender and what one's sexuality and gender to be fluid. There are no such concepts. They have no pre pre-academic training to understand, you know, kind of the movement of, of gender in a social system. And so they are simply traumatized. It's, and, and, I would argue, I would argue that the novel 
gives some semblance of gender fluidity. I mean, their their dad and one of their brothers go to the river to cry when it rains. Um, yes. One of the but boys they have to leave home to do it. They have to hide. Um, they have to hide among the tears to do it. They don't do this as freestanding men in, in a community that celebrates this as the, the demonstration of their masculinity. They literally have to run and hide somewhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. And one of the boys is a, a singer. That's right. And one of the boys is uh, extremely erudite and intelligent. These are these are some right. some. Uh, these aren't unequivocally associated with with um, with femininity, but they uh, are sometimes um, associated with uh, a female gender construction that, that is not uh-huh. not necessarily um, uh, uh, masculinity. So it, it suggested early in the text to me that the boys and the dad were, even if they did not conceive of it ideologically um, or explicitly. They had experience with, even if it weren't, um, the, even if we can't say that, that certain they didn't, they had experience with certain of their behaviors that were class that could be classified as feminine. They certainly were different, as you just said. They definitely were different, and not only did the family think of them as different in some ways, but but the community, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. So, how then do we understand, or can we understand? their uh, volatile response to perfect? Because, see, perfect's creation and perfect's gender as a very, very, very public thing um, um, makes, it makes, it forces gender in their face. See, this is a novel where uh, um, gender is fluid, but it's fluid privately. Mm-hmm. And we can live with it being fluid privately because it's public notions of gender and sexuality with which we are most concerned because that's where it has its, its greatest currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and when perfect is presented before the boys, literally, and, and before Gus, literally, um, gender is now forced in their face in a public arena. Such that, remember, there's even a point where Gus um, um, makes the child strip naked. It's to really de- uh, determine um, if what is being said here is true. Mm-hmm. But I feel like what's really happening here is they're, they're reacting in, in a very volatile way because this has been put in their face in a public way. And publicly, that's where we get uh, uh, caught up in terms of gender performance. Most gender performance is absolutely on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a private reality. Privately, as Baldwin talked about, you know, um, performance is done very differently, and and many many people in private places drop the performance altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Let me ask you this question about um, uh, still on this in the same vein about the volatile response. You say that the that gender they had to deal with with the public display of gender uh and uh, do you think that it had they they that these characters and not only these characters but the but the the ideology, ideologies and masculine performances in real life that they may represent feel that perfect gender is a reflection of their own perfect or paul's gender uh-huh uh-huh Maybe so. Certainly, that perfect gender makes them, it forces them to ask questions of their own. Mm-hmm. And it forces them to do it publicly. And again, that's where people get very unsettled and dismantled uh, in terms of their self worth and self confidence. It's not what the truth is, it's what people know. So when they say when they when when in the when the in the novel Gus and several of the brothers say we can't have a faggot in this family there's not going to be a sissified man in this family it's not only about Paul is it about it's Paul, really, it's not. Paul in fact it starts with Gus because remember even as a child Gus's father used to slap him and and and, and hit him when it, when he was acting like what his father called a sissy. Mm-hmm. 
And he just vowed that he would never be a sissy ever in his life, and he vowed that he would never, ever display this kind of behavior in order to get his father's applause. And so what's interesting is that Gus has all of these these traditionally um, as, uh, traditionally seen feminine characteristics. He cries like a baby and he can't hold it. You know, the list goes on and on and on. But um, but because all of these things are private acts for him, he he reacts to perfect in a very volatile way because perfect brings back to the fore the very possibility that perfect is simply a reflection of his own father. Gus is is forced to make those, some of those um, feminine behaviors private, right? Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And remember, even Gus has there's a scene where Gus is fighting God, right? Um, and but, but part of that fight, I believe, my interpretation is that Gus is actually fighting the possibility that in perfect, God is reminding Gus of the truth of who he is as a father. Mm-hmm. And 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 Gus had been. As Gus has spent his life trying to get away from these truths. And I do think it's important for uh, the listeners to know that uh, even though the brothers, the other six brothers, um, seem to stand in solidarity with the idea that um, perfect, who then becomes Paul, uh, needs to become more manly, um, they're, 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 uh, our brothers that are brothers that are sympathetic. That yes. shows some sympathy to that's right. uh, Paul's situation. That's right. That's right. They're sympathetic at different times and for different reasons. Some of some of the reasons, which are self-serving at times, also, but some of the reasons which uh, which just suggested that they just you know they love their little brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, having no script in terms of knowing how to negotiate uh, this this difference in gender, most of them fall prey to one extent or another to being obedient, if you will, to the traditional constructs of masculinity as it has been taught to them. And so let me offer a reading of the novel and get your response to this reading in relationship to what you just said. The brothers did not have a script to be able to negotiate what they discovered about um, Perfect, who, who became Paul, and to deal with their brother who now um, exhibits all the same characteristics that he did when he was their sister, but but now, you know, he's a a male. Does your novel itself offer a a, uh, counter-narrative or another script for dealing with uh, gender uh, variety? Or, I think so. I or, think let, so. Let me, I let me think put it another way. Let me put it another way. Okay. Not just gender variety, but uh, but I mean specifically for dealing with a range of masculinities, even let's say uh, male femininity, for instance. I think so. I think so. I absolutely think so. And I think so in several different ways. I think Gus at the river weeping. I think Blind Bartimaeus sleeping in the casket. I think Paul having been a girl, now being a boy. What I think is that in this novel, there are all these very strange manifestations of masculinity in these male characters, which is historically seen as strange, uh, feminine, weird, queer, you know, the word goes on and on. But I think what's interesting is I think that, that what happens in the novel is when these differences are announced, when these strangenesses, if you will, begin to manifest, initially the community critiques them, laughs about them, mocks them. But eventually, these strangenesses end up serving and, in fact, healing the entire public. Mm -hmm. Such that I think one of the things that gets offered in this novel is if we can explode the boundaries of masculinity and let those men um, who are different really truly be different, but let them still be seen as men and still be seen as masculine, um, that this this different manifestation, this broader manifestation of masculinity, which would include some of what we traditionally think of as feminine, ends up serving as a healing mechanism for an entire people. How does that explicitly come across in the novel? I think, for example, Gus is weeping at the river, right? Right. Um, Imogene and others are like, what the hell is that screaming down there at the river? Why is he doing that? Sounding like, in fact, Imogene even says literally, sound like a woman down there hollering. That's right. That's right. And, 
and, and so folks are mocking him. However, by the time we get to the middle of the novel, you know, Gus goes to the year, I mean, goes to the Jordan annually to purge. By the time we get to the middle of the novel, um, different community residents come to the edge of their porches and wait for Gus to begin to wail. Yes. And they weep with him. Gus doesn't know they're weeping with him. They weep with him, and they're, they're crying privately because they can hear him wailing in the distance. But his wailing begets their wailing. That's right. It does. However, it however, and I just want to push this for a moment. However, his wailing and his, call it agenda performance, in that moment, even though it has become an expected occurrence, it's still framed within um, a marginal a marginalized uh, practice. In other and that's words, okay, I think. Okay. I think that's okay for the time being because by the time we get to the end of the uh, by the time we get to the end of the novel, Gus is healing. Um, I, I mean, Gus is wailing at the river. People have not only begun to be healed, but people now need and expect Gus to go to the Jordan. So much so that there's a year when Gus doesn't go that the people are traumatized. That's true, but it doesn't negate the fact that um that because of the overt and explicit discourse about the practice as you just said even Emma Jean says something about it being um a femi- an effeminized practice and 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 utters that in a in a derogatory way right uh, it it doesn't say that other people other men would publicly and proudly and uh, unequivocally embrace uh, Gus's performance and encourage others no, it in doesn't. that performance. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's necessary because I think when we're exploding constructs of gender, I think it is wrong, I think it is incorrect to look for people who have been bound, who have been enslaved by traditional constructs of gender. I think it is, it is incorrect, and I think it will be even short-sighted to expect or even need them to be the ones who would, in fact, celebrate a broader notion of masculinity. No, no. We simply have to prevent that broader notion. We have to let it do its work, and it will transform those others. We don't need them on board to agree. I think that is absolutely a failure on the part of of, of a transformative thinking individual who's trying to press um, new understandings of masculinity. It will do its own work mm-hmm. as it does, and, and um, when Gus you know, by the time we get to the end, and, and again, Gus is well and is touching everyone, Gus doesn't need people to make a public announcement that, Gus, you are right with me now, or Gus, you know, you're willing at the river, it's fine. No, 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 no. It has already done its work before Gus even knows. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the women in the novel. Uh, okay. There are perfects. A childhood friends, um, Eva May, uh-huh. Eva May and, and, and Caroline. And uh, Eva May not only is uh, uh, Perfect's best friend throughout the novel, even after the transformation of becoming um, Paul, um, she's, she's attracted to uh, Paul in, in, in various ways and also to Perfect um, intimately. And so is, is, is uh, Christina. Um, That's right. Let's tell me, tell me, tell us about these female characters and what their role is in the plot of the text. Uh huh. Um, well, I'll start by saying that I think, in general, it has been true that women get a, a I get a little looser boundary. I think, in terms of the demonstration of gendered performance. Performance in public places. Um, I think about even growing up as a kid, how I was very, very aware that like women could wear dresses or pants. Mm-hmm. Men could only wear pants. Mm-hmm. Um, women could go to the bathroom with each other. Girls could sleep in the same bed with each other without being automatically seen as lesbian. But boys, if you slept over, um, one boy was on the floor and the other was in the bed. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and so I'm saying all of that to say I think a similar thing happens in this novel. Eva May's capacity to love perfect and Eva May's ability to embrace perfect, whether male or female, because Eva May is the one who, you know, when she hears that there's been a lie and that this girl really is a boy, Eva May is the only one who says, okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you know this sexual play that they're doing under the uh, under the house. Eva May, you know, it, when they were quote unquote playing house, Eva May was the husband and Perfect was the wife. But once Eva May finds out that that Perfect is a boy, she says, "Well, hell, then you be the husband." Right. I just want to play. Right. You know, so there's a way in which her sexuality is far more fluid. Um, than the boy's sexuality. But again, I think that's a reflection of the culture, the culture in which we live. There are ways in which, you know, a mother can can nurse and nurture a girl, but a mother can do that for a son too. You know, mothers are known to be these people who um, they can examine a little girl's body, but they can examine a little boy's body with the same level of comfort, the same level of ease. For a father, when a daughter gets a certain age, he calls mama. Right, right. And I think these girls reflect that. There's a a um, intriguing construction of Eva May in the text. Um, she is the one female character who is uh, rendered or is forced to be um, uh, in an unrequited romantic situation. In other words, she has no romantic uh counterpart in the text at all aside from right. the childhood sexual play that she does with perfect right. paul right. um and i wondered why the novel presents her in that way i mean even even the woman who doesn't think that she's sexually attractive uh um caroline, caroline because she's um obese um, or of size, maybe the more politically uh-huh. correct way to put it. Um, even she finds a partner um, in one of Perfect's brothers. But but why why is Eva left loveless? Because th- there are a couple of reasons. One, th- one of the things that's interesting about Eva May is that, and if you'll notice, this is a novel wherein the women have the traditionally masculine traits. And the men have the traditionally feminine traits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I feel like the author is 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 um, is doing that for a very serious re- reason to show the price we pay when men step outside of the construct of masculinity and when women step out of the construct of femininity. So here's Eva May, wow. this character, who is, yeah, who in every way is 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 a boy in terms of in terms of her characteristics which is one of the reasons why the other boys are not attracted to her. Well, you say it's part of because of how she looks. I mean, she's, and, she's, and, she's and sexy. And, and, she has a sexy sure, and body. and I was going there, too. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. But she's unattractive in, in, uh, in terms of face. And the price of the aesthetic for black people. See, our very, our very coming to America, we were brought here on aesthetic terms. The aesthetic has been the thing by which we have determined ourselves worth. Hmm. See, I feel like European Americans, for example, they get to be valuable just because they're white. Mm-hmm. We don't get to be valuable just because we're black. We're only valuable if we're black and cute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a way in which our, our, our aesthetic was even commodified as early as the auction block. Mm-hmm. They gave more money depending on the way we looked. Mm-hmm. That reality has, has has become more complicated, of course, and more complex, but it has been embraced by the very people um, um, who were enslaved by it initially. Mm-hmm. And so this is why now, you know, when you talk about attractions in the black community, the first thing we think about, the first thing that gets culturally introduced is the body. Right. Not the mind. You know, we talk about booties and we talk about, you know, pecs and and you know we talk about hair, and mm-hmm. we talk about the things which seemingly um, are trivial. But for black folks who 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 were created, if you will, under aesthetic terms in America, those things carry the value in terms of who we are. So, so the fact that Eva May, her hair is all over her head and it's nappy, quote unquote, and all of this. The fact that she's unattractive facially takes her out of the um, game, if you will, in terms of. Um, boys in the community being attracted to her regardless of how good she is to them. The novel gives us the future about several characters. In other words, in the course of the novel, there is an uh, an extra textual um, 
description, and I mean a, a description that exceeds the timeline that the novel ends with. So, you know, you'll say something like this happens to author Lee or this happens to right. Bartimaeus down the line. The author, I mean, the text doesn't give us that with Eva May. So we're left to assume that um, she is, that she lives her life in this uh, un- unrequited uh, condition. Or is that, is that, that not maybe mm-hmm. That may be true. It absolutely may be true. I don't know that we're left to assume that, but one certainly can assume that. What we are left is with we don't know what's going to happen. And the reason I did that is because what is also true, Dr. Young, is unless something shifts for black people aesthetically in America, we also don't know our own future. Wow. And what do you mean aesthetically? You mean instead of judging uh, the first reference being the body? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. This, this is one of the reasons why I think it's difficult even to perpetuate um, – um, I think it's difficult to perpetuate um, romantic relationships in the African-American community because too much, not all, but too much of our relationships and too much of our um, of our attraction and our self-worth and our belief in one another rests upon the aesthetic. Right. Right. You know, when we get, the first thing we want to know is how cute somebody is in terms of your mate. Right. Right. You know what? There are so many, so many questions that I have um, about this novel and about its relationship to the larger uh, uh, cultural atmosphere that we're living in and even the political um, uh, framework that we're in right now. But I want to hear some of the novel. Will you read to us? Yes, I absolutely will. Um, Okay. Everyone, Imogene said, I suppose there's no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to go ahead on and say it. She positioned the child in front of her and rested her hands on Perfect's shoulders. When Perfect was born, I wanted a girl. Does you remember? I always wanted girls, but I didn't have none. You boys was fine and all, but I needed me a girl, someone I could dress up and make feel pretty. Y'all know what I mean. She tried to laugh, but no one laughed in return. So I did something I shouldn't have. I lied. I told y'all the child was a girl, but it wasn't. He's a boy. Dust inched forward in slow motion, setting Imogene's face. I needed a girl, Dust, okay? Can't you understand that? Every mother wants a girl. It's a woman's dream. You did what, Imogene Peace? He approached like a starving lioness before the kill. Gus, listen, listen, honey, I know this don't make much sense to you right now, but you got to try to understand where I was then. I ain't understanding nothing you saying, woman. I'm sorry, Imogene Wine. I didn't mean for it to happen like this. Everything just got so out of hand. Gus lifted Perfect's head and saw his own reflection. You lying to me, Imogene. My baby girl ain't no boy. Do you think I'd lie about something like this, man? Gus looked at Perfect. You my little girl. You're going to always be my little girl, and ain't nothing in the world going to change that. Stop it, Gus. Listen to what I'm saying. I lied to you. I lied to everybody when this child was born. I needed a girl. I mean, I knew it couldn't last forever, but I... Gus slapped Imogene so hard the boys gasped and held their breaths. I don't know what you done done, he whispered. But this right here, he pointed to the child. This, this ain't no boy. Yes, it is, Gus. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. I didn't know it would do this to you. I never even knew you wanted a girl. I wanted a girl the day I thought you had one. Now, I don't know why you don't go and cut her hair off, and I don't know why she got on them boys' clothes, because he's a boy, Gus. He's a boy. Gus's eyes watered and his mouth quivered. If what you're saying is true, you prove it to me right now, Imogene. What do you mean, prove it to you? I just told you, don't tell me nothing. I said, prove it to me. Oh, honey, the only way you know for sure. Suddenly he turned to perfect. Take them clothes off. Oh, honey, no, no, you don't mean that. Don't embarrass him in front of his brothers. He ain't ready for nothing like that. I said take them damn clothes off. Imogene reached to assist, but Gus wouldn't allow it. Not you, he pushed her hands away. You, he said to Perfect, you do it by yourself. Perfect submitted, dropping his overalls to the floor. Gus thought he saw bulge, but he was still unsatisfied. Take them drawers off, too. Oh, Gus, no, honey, don't do this. Not in front of the boys. Take them into another room or shut the hell up, Emma Jane. 
Herbert Sobbing returned as he lowered his underwear to his ankles. When Gus saw his miniature penis, he screamed, Oh, God, no! No! And crumbled to his knees. The brothers looked on in disbelief. I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry. If I could do it all over again, I'd do it different. Baby, I know you're upset, but please try to understand. Gus lunged at Imogene before Arthur Lee could restrain him. He smacked her three or four times and pinned her neck to the floor with his thick, rough hands. What you do this for? You ain't got no right to do nobody like this. What the hell is wrong with you, Imogene Peace? Imogene squirmed upon the floor in breathless agony. Perfect closed his Perfect had closed his eyes once he removed his underwear and never knew that it was his brother, Mister, who had indeed replaced them. Perfect set in a sea of nothing but sorrow. His partially straight, stubby hair made him look as if he'd been in a brawl and lost badly. Wedged between Mister and Saul, who kept looking at him sympathetically, he watched Imogene crawl into the bedroom and kick the door closed behind her as the reigns of 48 began. He never lifted his head. He knew he wasn't beautiful anymore. His brothers and energies convinced him now that he was ordinary, simple, common, just like them. It was strange the perfect how his world was shifting without his consent. He didn't feel safe like he once did as a girl in his brother's presence. Sitting on the sofa trembling with his head practically touching his knees, he felt his previous life lose away as his brothers ushered him into a more harsh, less sympathetic, more masculine reality. On his little brother's behalf, King Solomon dragged his heavy heart to the edge of the porch and sang sweetly, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home, a long way from home, while his little brother sat shivering in a sea of nothing but sorrow. Wow. Wow. Amazing, Daniel Black. Absolutely wow, amazing. Thank you, thank thank you for you. delivering this novel to the world. And it seems like we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so can you tell us what you're working on next? Yes, I have a new novel that will be coming out later this fall. It is titled 12 Gates to the City. Wow. Um, yes, 12 Gates to the City. It is also set in Swamp Creek, Arkansas, the same setting as Perfect Peace. And it is a story surrounding a young man who is desperately looking for his destiny. And he wants his destiny, be to, his destiny to be far away from this godforsaken southern country place called Swamp Creek, Arkansas. But he comes to find that um, this place, these people, um, hold far more truth and far more magic and far more wonder than he ever thought possible. And he ultimately discovers that he was born and he was made to live out his destiny among this rural, um, almost um, insular community, because there are inner gifts that he has, which this community has waited centuries for. Wow. I can't wait to read that. And for your um, your fans, your followers, the people who've read all of your novels, um, they will know that's, that Swamp Creek is the setting also of They Tell Me of a Home. That's right. Um, as well as Perfect Peace, which we just discussed. And so how, right. how how does this next forthcoming book, which is also uh, readers can see advertised on Amazon.com, uh, how is that different from the plot of uh, They Tell Me of a Home? This novel is a sequel of sorts to They Tell Me of a Home. Okay. It picks up where They Tell Me of a Home leaves off, and it teases out this character's decision to return um, home to this small place called Swamp Creek, and what it would mean as an academic, as a Ph.D., as a traveled cosmopolitan man, what it would mean for him to live his life out in this very, very, very rural uh, southern place, and how these two realities, what it means to be a man of the world and um, to, to be in the country, how they come together uh, to form a kind of truth that both feeds him and feeds the people from whom he comes. But it, 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 it's also a way whereby he comes to understand that, you know, um, having studied African-American studies and this kind of thing in graduate school, this main character, he realizes that what he was reading and what he was studying in the books, um, he gets a different dimension of understanding when, when, when he allows himself to see his own people as beautiful and his own people as wonderful. He then is able to combine academic um, textual knowledge with experiential spiritual knowledge mm -hmm. and to come up with a truth for himself that constructs a life uh, about which he had just never dreamed. 
Professor Black, thank you so much for joining us on uh, New Books in African American Studies. I was delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me, my brother. And, and just thank you for what you're doing uh, to make the world a better place. I appreciate you. We've been listening to author Daniel Black discuss his latest novel, Perfect Peace, published by St. Martin's Press in 2010. If you've listened to this interview, you know that Perfect Peace is a must-read. Tell your friends about it.